Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA Today. It is already Tuesday, 10th of May, 2022. We've got a big show coming today. We're going to be speaking about soybean export potential. We're going to talk both veg oil products and meal with Mac Marshall, the export economist there with the U.S. Soybean Export Commission. We're also going to be speaking with Simon Lester, author of the China Trade Monitor, about some of the changes that are coming in the world of international trade, both because of the war in Ukraine Ukraine and just because of the U.S.-China ongoing disputes that have hampered trade between those two countries. China will bring, or excuse me, Simon will bring us up to speed on how that is expected to progress as we move into summer. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk to Mary Thomas Hart from NCBA. Across the country, WOTUS roundtables are being held, basically trying to get producers insight into the EPA on the waters of the U.S. Act. She's going to provide a little bit of an update as to what they have been hearing as those roundtables get underway. But first and foremost, we are going to talk markets. Garrett Toy, author of Ag Trader Talk, joins us today. Garrett, planting progress is moving forward at a slow pace bring us up to speed yesterday's planting progress report how are we faring as on the whole well we're, we're now slower than 2019 we advanced eight percent 22 percent complete uh that's versus the 50 percent average uh, and we were 64 percent last year so um that's the slowest uh we're slower than 2019 it's the slowest planting pace since 12 percent in 2013 and it's the second slowest planting pace nationally since 2000. Um, <clears throat> however, I mean, I think part of the reason, it's not great, obviously. I mean, uh, a lot of people with their models as far as the ability to reach trend line yields uh, would like to have a national corn planting pace about 50% as of today. So we're, uh, you know, definitely going to, uh, you know, keep uh the summer uh weather markets active because uh you know we're, we're starting up behind the eight ball now that being said <clears throat> you know, this week's weather forecast uh is improved i think a lot of people are more relieved with the uh the, the warm-up and temperatures you know warm and wet versus cool and wet you know i know around in our our area of northwest illinois yesterday was about as busy as i have can remember seeing it uh, you know, manure being applied, planting, uh, you know, every field had a tractor in it and they were going hard. Um, you know, the only detriment was that is that we had 20 mile an hour winds with it. And, uh, I think a lot of topsoil was lost, which unfortunately, but, but that being said, uh, you know, we should make a pretty good, uh, a, a dent in planting progress in the next week. So maybe yesterday's numbers were a little backward looking. Uh, however, you know, as far as some key dates, this May 10th today is an important date. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're going to be behind the eight ball a little bit until we get caught up. Yeah. And Garrett, looking at the trade action today, uh, particularly in the corn market, the market seems to think that we are going to get caught up new crop corn down two and a half cents when do you expect to start to see concern about this delayed planting percolate into the markets well i mean we had this big sell-off last week you know and i think that it was a combination of you know it's a market's always it's a future market it's always forward looking and i think that sell-off last week was a combination of the market anticipating uh, anticipating improved planting conditions this week, along with the macro trade. You know, I think it was macro. You look how the meats reacted last week. That uh, you know, the sell-off that we saw in cattle and hogs, uh, it just felt like a general risk-off uh, post FOMC interest rate hike. Um, you know, risk, you know, is negative GDP numbers, everything else. Um, you know, I think that that kind of uh, weighed on the market. So I, you know, the fact that, and a lot of people pointed it out that we were having planning delays and the market didn't rally, uh, it told you that the risk premium is already in the market. So this risk premium is coming out. We're trying to stabilize. These outside markets are trying to stabilize a little bit. We've got the, the Dow up 1.1% uh, this morning and crudes trading both sides of unchanged. So I think the macro pressures might be, for now, slowing. Uh, we consolidate a little bit ahead of Thursday's WASD. 
Well, you mentioned that WASD is coming up. All of this price action is taking place with that in the background. Garrett, are you expecting any big changes to the corn balance sheet on this WASD? Well, the first things first is where we're going to get uh, we're going to get uh, the first look at 22-23 S and D. So those are going to be the benchmarks are going to be set. Uh, as far as the old crop is concerned, I mean old crop corn. I really do not see I really do not see the the, the old crop corn carry out uh, increasing any. I mean you look at census export numbers last week. Uh, if we were continue that pace, it tells you that the USDA is about 100 million bushel underestimated. Uh, on exports at this point, and I think a lot of that, uh, you know, the, I just don't think the export numbers are going to get cut. So the bias is the corn carryout is going to tighten. Uh, on soybeans, similar. I mean, we've, we've finally gotten to the point where soybean commitments are above the USDA's base. Uh, we should see an increase in exports there. Crush is lagging a little bit. Maybe the USDA decides to offset that with a reduced crush number. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, the way these crush margins are going, I think that eventually as the year progresses that we should uh, see that USDA number come true. So uh, my bias is both for carryout decreases in both corn and soybeans. That seems to be what the market is. And then watching what these 22-23 numbers look like because how is the USDA going to account for Ukraine? Reduced, reduced plantings out of the Black Sea. Um, you know, the, the USDA production numbers are, are fairly, you know, I see the trades expecting yield changes, but yield changes in, in May deviations from the Fed outlook trend line numbers are few and far between. They're, they're really, really rare. Um, so the base is just going to update for the, the March intention uh, acres. But um, production numbers shouldn't be uh, really paid too much attention to in this report. It's largely going to be what the world S&D numbers are. And, and I think you know, it's, it's the first look at things. Uh, we're probably going to get an overly optimistic view of, of the world S corn S&D. Um, just because it's a benchmark and it's a starting point. And, um, you know, this, this situation means very fluid. It is, and it's fluid in the livestock sector as well. Little weakness today in live cattle. Garrett, do you think that market is, is finding a low here in the medium term? It sure seems like the June fats in the cattle market, that's where you want to start talking. You know, the, under this 133 level, it seems like we've got value under here, um, you know, the castics are just hammered and oversold in here, um, and we'll see what cash does this week. And the bias is maybe the cash might even be a little bit lower this week. We'll see. Um, I haven't seen anything trade yet, but uh, yeah, we definitely seems like this 133 value has some has some value. Um, the hog market, <clears throat> well, it's kind of a horse of a different color. Um, you know, I continue to hear stories of of. Uh, of, of empty buildings, but we just kind of seem to be hovering just above in, in, in July, just above this this 200-day moving average at 101.97. Uh, again, we seem to be fighting buyers under that 104 level um, for now. Um, but I'd like to. We've already had an outside day lower here today. I'd like to, you know, after yesterday's gap lower, um, you know, we need to see some traction step here. But it just it doesn't seem to be showing up just yet. All right, we'll see if that traction gets into the picture here shortly. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk, always appreciate your insight. Thank you. And folks, stay with us when we return. Mac Marshall of the U.S. Soybean Export Council will be joining us. We're going to talk about soybeans moving off the, our shores in the year ahead. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Soil. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. 
Farmer's log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. I guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Experts agree, using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. One of the biggest themes in agriculture, particularly American agriculture, is the productive capability of our farmers. U.S. Ag, we grow way more food than we need to feed Americans, which makes trade and exports vital for ensuring we've got prices that make sense to grow the crops here in this country. As we talk about trade, this past two or three years has been crazy from the perspective of global trade. 2022, looks like that theme is going to continue. And I was curious as to how is that going to impact the soybean export trade that we've grown quite used to in this country. To help make sense of everything, Mac Marshall, the Vice President of Market Intelligence at USAC, U.S. Soybean Export Council, joins us today. Mac, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, my pleasure, Mike, and it's great to be back on the program. Let's talk about how we sit for U.S. soybean exports during this marketing season. Matt, give us the overview. How does this compare to years past? Well, I, I love that question because I, um, I, I've said this before. When I you know, think about the marketing year that we're in, in any given marketing year, I always like to look back to history and think about, okay, well, what are similar years where we had uh, you know, similar circumstances or conditions, and, you know, what what can we learn from that and apply to the current year? Now, certainly there are an incredible number of global disruptions that are unfolding, and I, I imagine we'll get into that more as the segment goes on. But, you know, right now, uh, if we look at our uh, soy uh, export pace for both whole beans and really the whole complex, it's, um, you know, it's, it's certainly behind last year's pace, which was an absolute banner year. We exported over 61 million tons of beans. Um, about 75 million tons of the total complex. But as I look ahead, um, you know, basically to this point of the season, we've been kind of tracking along with the 14-15 marketing year, which, you know, wound up being good. We exported over 50 million tons of beans. But I think what's really exciting is as we are in the second half of the marketing year um, and we look ahead to our forward commitments, I think there's a lot of um, upside opportunity 
for uh, for those volume figures in the second half of the year to continue to grow. We've got you know over 11 million tons in outstanding sales um, that you know should be shipped uh, between now and September 1st on the whole bean side. That's more than uh, double what our uh, commitment uh, level was this time last year, as far as uh, as far as um, uh, un- unsold. Um, uh, uh, unsold commitments. Um, so that's uh, that, that's certainly very exciting. I think we could wind up in a year, you know, similar to 1617 or 1718 when, you know, we exported about 58 million tons of beans. Uh, and those are, of course, you know, our banner years prior to last year. And, and really the upshot of this is, you know, it, it, I'm talking numbers here and everything, but I think what's exciting about it is what does it actually mean? I mean, that's a delivery of you know U.S. soy complex to customers at a time in the year when uh, in years past the U.S. typically hasn't had that strength. So I think being able to have that second half um, you know surge in sales is you know important for the U.S. soy complex for two reasons. I think one, um, it, it means a broader uh, customer base ideally is getting to experience uh, the quality of U.S. soy, and that's certainly good for continuing to grow demand and preference for U.S. origin soy in the years to come. But also, uh, and, and this is more, I think, in the near term, turning our eye towards uh, the uh, the USDA report that will come out on Thursday, is, you know, if we see any sort of revisions in the export forecast for um, for this marketing year, um, that has the potential to, you know, eat into those projected inventories that we have at the close of the 21-22 marketing year. And, uh, you know, given the inventory levels that we're at right now, or at least that are forecast, you know, given present export uh, projections, um, that, that would imply additional supply tightness uh, here on the U.S. balance sheets. And I, I think the appreciative for price as well, of course, you know, we'll see what the, what the markets dictate. Now, this is all against the backdrop of us having a, a slow start to the 2022 planting season. Um, I, I don't think I need to tell any farmer around this country uh, what's going on in, in that front. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly been uh, frustrating with weather as both our corn and beans planting pace is, is behind, uh, you know, less than 50% of the five-year average for both crops at this point in time. Um, but, you know, I think uh, this next week should generally be good across many parts of the country. So hopefully we can make up some lost ground because if 2022 is teaching you anything, uh, in terms of a global uh, supply and demand picture, it's that we can't take any harvest for granted. You know, you said it from the opener. Um, we're very blessed to have uh, incredibly efficient farmers who are producing a surplus that feeds the U.S., that feeds the world. Uh, and, and this year, I think more than any in recent history, really underscores how critical this harvest is going to be. I think you're exactly right, Mac. As you think about the soy product side, let's put whole beans on the shelf for a minute. Products have been crazy, both meal and oil here over the past several weeks. Let's focus on oil first, because that's been the more volatile one. As you look out for U.S. bean oil shipments to be exported, is there opportunity in this year to see that grow? Or is the demand so strong here at home that most of our oil will be staying in our shores? Well, it's it's a balancing act between exports and domestic demand, and certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen a, a fundamental shift where a greater and greater share of our soybean oil is being consumed domestically rather than making it into export channels. Um, but there's really a couple of prevailing factors around that. I mean, certainly we we talk about growth in the biofuel sector in the U.S. as you know a an ever growing. Um, uh, channel of demand uh, for soybean oil domestically. But I think we also have to look at the overall backdrop of a global veg oil complex, and not just for this season, because again, there's a tremendous amount of disruption this season. Um, you know, price levels really across all the major vegetable oils are high. But the, um, the the table started getting set for this a couple of years ago. You know, over the last three, four growing seasons, you know, we've, we've had short crops uh, in Canada last year with canola. We had short crops across the Black Sea for um, for sunflower seed uh, in, I think, 2019 or 2020, um, really across Russia, Ukraine, and the EU. And then, uh, you know, structurally in Southeast Asia, we've been in this you know, less productive part of the uh, palm tree cycle for several years. So yields have... have you know, not had that, uh, you know, continued growth pattern. And then, of course, you've also got, uh, you've had COVID-induced labor issues that have impacted harvest uh, in Malaysia. So you put all that together, and then this year you overlay the dryness across South America, where we see pretty substantial production cuts 
to aggregate production across Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. Um, all of these factors, I think, have been coming together to elevate the overall price level for vegetable oils, and um, and that's led, I think, to a little bit of a shift uh, towards more domestic demand here, which is not to say that, you know, global demand for veg oils is abating by any stretch or that, uh, you know, U.S. soybean oil doesn't still play a critical role in supplying international markets. Um, I mean, certainly this year already, I mean, typically South Korea is our top export destination for soybean oil. This year, we've actually seen India uh, leapfrog. Um, you know, it's, as India is, you know, one of the world's largest consumers of vegetable oils and, you know, would typically be sourcing uh, palm oil or sunflower seed oil from, you know, Southeast Asia and uh, Black Sea, uh, respectively. And, you know, due to the disruptions uh, in, in production and distribution uh, for very different reasons uh, in those two markets, you've also seen India um, have a number of spot purchases of uh, U.S. soybean oil. So it's uh, certainly exciting uh, to see U.S. soybean oil being utilized in uh, a large market like India, um, you know, that is, is such a, a large buyer and where, you know, they're, you know, the key preferences on a, uh, on a consumer staple there. Um, but yeah, there's, we're just kind of seeing these, uh, you know, somewhat um, abnormal uh, trade flows uh, that are unfolding as, as, a, as a byproduct of a lot of the global uh, unrest and disruption here. Um, Mac, the flip side of that thing, oil coin is meal. Do you see meal exports being strong for the remainder of 2022? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, you typically have meal kind of, uh, you know, it, it doesn't follow that same seasonal export pattern that, that whole beans do, where you have a significant run up in the fall and then it kind of slows down on the balance of the year. It's really, uh, you know, more balanced throughout the course of the marketing year. But again, if we look at the, the figures out of USDA, look at what we've exported thus far and look at what's on the order book for the balance of the year. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got figures right in front of me here and, you know, we're looking at outstanding sales uh, between now and September 30th uh, that are up nearly a quarter relative to last year. So we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, forward-looking demand out of Latin America, places like Colombia and Ecuador. Of course, those are big um, aquaculture producers, uh, but also growth in, in uh, projected exports to the European Union, um, looking at the order bank there. And, uh, and uh, even even emerging markets uh, like Morocco, which is uh, also has a you know, strong aquaculture presence and demand for uh, U.S. soy meal. So I, I expect the overall strength in uh, export meal demand to continue over the balance of the year. Um, I think we've got a well-balanced portfolio and it should shape up uh, to be pretty strong in the second half of the marketing year. Well, that's good news for a lot of those growers that are hoping to get those beans in the ground here in the coming weeks. Our thanks to Mac Marshall, Vice President of Market Intelligence at USEC. Mac, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. Simon Lester of the China Trade Monitor will join us when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we take a look at the market trade, we have started to fade a bit off our opening highs uh, that we saw in the overnight session and into the early go of things this morning. Corn is slightly below unchanged now. Soybeans still holding on to some green while wheat has faded back as well here to trade mixed to lower. Now, of course, yesterday we saw plenty of pushback from a VIX trading near 34, the U.S. dollar index near 19-year highs, COVID lockdowns in China, and just general risk-off trading in the stock market. And it's looking like today so far we are starting to see maybe a little more of that risk off trade move in, although the stock market is trading higher with the Dow up 358 points, crude oil down 56 cents a barrel at 102.53. Planting progress last week didn't show much in the way of progress, which was pretty much as expected. The forecast for this week, though, showing uh, pretty much hot and dry weather across the bulk of the Corn Belt, minus about the 20% or so of the northern Corn Belt, which is going to remain cool and wet. So that should allow us to get more planting done here this week. But still maybe a little bit of profit taking and squaring here today, it looks like, ahead of Thursday's WASDE report. Numbers right now, July corn down two and a quarter, 769 at three quarters. July beans four and a half higher, 1589 at three quarters. July bean meal up $1.20 a ton, 404. July bean oil up 39 points at 8013. Chicago wheat, July four lower, 1088 and three quarters. July Kansas City wheat down two, 1162 at a quarter. Spring wheat for July, two and three quarters higher, 1209 and a half. Lean hogs, June five higher, 101.35. May feeder cattle down 32, 159.47. June live cattle, 10 lower right now, 133.45. So fading a bit in cattle and hogs as well. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end a good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex premium diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. In that last segment, talking with Mac Marshall there of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, we discussed the broad-based demand for beans and bean products around the world. One place we didn't spend a lot of time focusing on their demand over this next year is China. Of course, they have been a huge purchaser of ag products since that trade war ended in 2020. And looking out to the future, it's frosty, the interactions between the world's two largest economies, the U.S. and China. And one person who spends a lot of time tracking these issues is Simon Lester, former attorney at the World Trade Organization, founder, editor at the China Trade Monitor. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here with you, Mike. I wanted to talk first. Last week, we had some visits and some comments by the Chinese ambassador to the United States, and he was talking about the, the poll that was released from Pew saying that 82% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China, and that, that number's going up. Simon, what was his take on that, and what can he do or what can China do to alleviate that? Well, I'm always intrigued by uh, government officials, uh, you know, spin on, on world events. Um, you know, they, they, they can't be sort of perfectly honest and give you their, their actual view. They're out there promoting the, the view of their government. Um, so it was, it was interesting that, that he gave this interview and, you know, he, he sort of made, made the case for, um, you know, better relations between, between China and the United States in general. And he, he, was, he was sort of tactful about the way he criticized 
um, some of the U.S. positions on you know, national security related to trade. Um, in terms of this, this issue of, of how China could be perceived better in the United States, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that they, they could do. Um, you know, I don't know that, practically speaking, that they're, they're willing to do it. I mean, there are certain practices uh, going on in China related to you know, forced labor in Xinjiang and, and crackdowns in, in, on democracy in Hong Kong and threats to Taiwan. Um, you know, if, if China is going to continue that behavior, I, I think it's clear that there are going to be uh, people in the United States politicians and others who are going to be critical of it and, you know, the, the, the sort of the negative perception of Americans uh, related to China is going to continue. I'm not sure there, there's, a, there's a way out of it other than some of China's behavior, you know, has to change a bit. Now, I'm not suggesting that China, you know, is, is likely to or, or is going to consider, uh, let's become a democracy, you know, let's radically reshape our political system. That's not going to happen. But I, I think there are smaller steps that China could take that would, you know, kind of moderate some of the criticism coming from the United States. I mean, there are going to be some politicians who will make the criticism regardless. They're not going to change. But I think there are, are, are steps that they could take to, 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 so that some of the more, more moderate voices in the United States would you know, relax a little bit, calm down a little bit more about China. But I, I think it's largely up to, to China. I think that here in the United States, the political mood is set. Um, it, it's, it's politicians on both sides of the aisle, maybe more Republicans than Democrats, but still plenty of Democrats, have, have you know, elevated China um, as this existential threat that we have to worry about. And it, it doesn't seem like that's going away any, anytime soon. Now, Russia did come onto the scene and invade Ukraine, and that was probably good for China because it gave everybody somebody, some, another country to point to. Uh, but I don't think that uh, that that's, that's going to lead to better feelings about China. It's just a, a sort of momentary distraction. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that up. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, a lot of eyes in the international community turned to China to see how they're going to respond, how they're going to align themselves. Simon, in the world of the, the international trade community, what is the, the verdict of China's reaction post-Ukraine? Are, are trade policy folks generally pleased with the way China hasn't rocked the boat? Well, I wouldn't say pleased. Um, I, I guess I would say it, it's could be better, could be worse. I mean, I think what people would like to see, this is beyond the trade community, but just in general, what they would like to see is China siding with the U U.S. and EU Western democracies against Russian aggression. They would like to see that. Um, they, what they worry about is China, you know, taking Russia's side and um, you know, sort of allying with Russia, you know, in, in a more intense way. You know, it hasn't really been that either. So it's it sort of China's been trying to take this, this middle ground, which has generated some criticism, but prevented, you know, it's avoided sort of the greater criticism of siding, of siding with Russia. So, yeah, so I, I think everyone's just, it, it sort of continued the impression of China as this is, that we, you know, we need to be wary of them. We need to be concerned about them. Um, you know, but yeah, right. China's trying to walk this line to, to stay friends with Russia and not antagonize the U.S. and the West. I, I think it's pretty much worked for both sides at this point. It just, it, it hasn't aggravated the situation. It, it hasn't made us, it hasn't made the U.S. and the West hate China more, um, but, but everyone's just sort of keeping their eye on it. There's a wariness of, of, of where, you know, where China might go here. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's mostly just ended up neutral. Um, it, it hasn't improved or worsened China's reputation in, in the international community, uh, mostly just been neutral. And the status quo continues, not just in our relationship with China, but also with most of the tariffs that the U.S. put on Chinese goods. Simon, as you look out over this summer, do you anticipate any of those U.S. imposed tariffs on Chinese goods going away? Is there conversation about those topics? Yeah, so there's a big statutorily required review of those tariffs um, that's about to happen in the, in the coming months. And in the context of uh, you know, rising U.S. inflation, there have been calls for, well, we need to, you know, one way to address that would be to scale back some of these tariffs. And you've had some people in the Biden administration seem to support that, but then the key trade official, Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade, Rep, the trade representative, seemed a little more skeptical. So what I, what I would guess is going to happen, this isn't sort of a firm prediction, a little bit of speculation is, 
they're going to have this required, you know, uh, effort to, to review the tariff. They, what they may end up doing is adjusting them a bit. So we're not going to see them all go away, but we could see a different mix. And so what they could do is identify particular products that have um, suffered the highest inflation and say, well, we're going to remove the tariffs on those, and we're going to replace those, you know, we're, we're, and we're going to target some other products instead. So we could see an adjustment of the tariffs with, in a way that can be sold as we're, you know, we're trying to you know, take on to address inflation a little bit. Um, so we'll shift the mix a bit. We'll, we'll, we'll calibrate them a little more uh, carefully, but mostly just keep them in place, keep the overall policy of tariffs on China in place, because I think it's, it's politically sensitive for the Biden administration uh, that you know, they don't want to look soft on China, so they can't just say, even if they wanted to get rid of the tariffs, they, they probably feel like they, they can't just remove them all. Uh, so this sort of careful recalibration, uh, factoring in inflation, and you know, just sort of you know, taking the time to, to, to think about, you know, uh, you know, is some new mix um, desirable here? I think that's where we'll end up. And it'll, it'll be a couple months. They're going to get public comments from everybody. Uh, they, may, they might hold hearings on it. Um, so in the context of this sort of new investigation, this review, uh, I think we'll see some changes. All right, Simon, I want to take the focus away from China for just a minute and have you put on your World Trade Organization hat, if you would. We've seen war in Europe for the first time since World War II. First time, really, the WTO has been tested. As you think about the future of that organization with Russia, with Ukraine, with, with the rest of the world, what does it look like, broadly speaking? And is the WTO working as they try to impose these sanctions on Russia, do you think? I think there are when you when you have an actual war going on. I think there are just limits to what the WTO can do. And so my understanding is that you know, so Russia is a member of the WTO and they still go to to meetings, but people really just aren't interacting with Russia. Um, and, and you know, we're nobody's following WTO rules with regard to Russia. This is just one of these situations that the WTO can't handle. You know, you can't expect. You, you can't ask too much of an international organization. So Russia is sort of a pariah state in the WTO right now, and it may be for a, a long time. Um, you know, I don't know when we get to the stage where we can trust Russia again, uh, even when the war ends. Now, in general, the WTO, I, I think that there are some things that have stopped working and things that you know, are working but maybe aren't that well known. So the WTO hasn't had much success in negotiating new trade deals in, in the past you know, few years or 20 years. And I, I don't know that there's a great expectation they'll fix that problem soon. But there, are still, there is still daily work uh, of the WTO where governments go to meet about a wide range of trade issues. So this could be um, you know, sanitary standards for food or technical barriers to trade for industrial products or intellectual property. Then everybody shows up and they meet and they talk about things and they resolve issues. And, you know, that, it, it doesn't make headlines, but it's still useful and, you know, there's still value to that. One of the biggest problems the WTO has had recently is the breakdown of the dispute settlement system. And this is something the Trump administration initiated and the Biden administration has continued. And there's hope that with a, a new U.S. ambassador to the WTO just put in place that maybe um, talks on getting WTO dis the WTO dispute process working again, maybe those talks will, will make some progress. And that would be, that would be a, a value. Um, that's something that's been lost over the, the past couple of years. So the WTO, you know, it, it gets a lot of criticism, um, but, I, you know, I think there is real, you know, valuable work still being done there. Um, I think we do have to keep our expectations in check. The WTO can't solve all the world's problems. It can't solve climate change. It can't solve the pandemic. Uh, there are some people who seem to think, well, if it didn't do, do those things, it, it has failed. Um, I think it's got a more basic task, which is getting governments together to talk about trade conflicts and, and broader trade issues and, and principles, and it's pretty good at that. So I think, you know, we can complain, but there's also still plenty to celebrate. That's good to hear. Anything we can do to keep international trade flowing is good news, I think, for America's agricultural producers. Our thanks to Simon Lester of the China Trade Monitor. Simon, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And folks, you can check them out at Chinatrademonitor.com. And when we return, Mary Hart Thomas with NCBA will be joining us. We're going to talk about those WOTUS roundtables happening around the country. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. 
Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Sarah Engstrom. She's the Chief Information Security Officer at CHS about protecting data on the farm during planting season. Sarah, as farmers continue to introduce technology on their operations and their equipment, what are the potential cybersecurity risks that open up during planting season? There are a few things I can think of here. The first is that it's a busy time. People are tired, working long hours, and multitasking. Those are exactly the qualities these actors prey upon. Secondly, during a critical time in any business's busy season, we need to act fast. And this can sometimes lead to mistakes or not thinking through things, such as prioritizing a system update that's leaving the company exposed. And thirdly, the financial damage caused to a company at the height of their business's seasonality can certainly tempt companies to pay a ransom when maybe they wouldn't have decided to in normal days, but because of the potential restoration timeline in such an event, it really just maybe entices um, them to make a quick decision. What should farmers expect from companies they do business with when it comes to data management and cybersecurity? Farmers should certainly expect that companies are protecting their assets through people, process, and technology. Depending on the criticality of the data shared with other companies, it's fair to inquire into that team, the investments, the capabilities that the company has employed or not to help make a decision on whether you feel comfortable doing business with them. As we do for third-party vendors who support our business process, we ask them questions from who owns cybersecurity in your organization to have you had a third-party accreditation of your security posture. It's certainly a data point in addition to many other considerations. That's Sarah Engstrom, the Chief Information Security Officer at CHS. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us here around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We will be speaking here in a few minutes with Mary Thomas Hart. She's the Environmental Counsel at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And we're going to be speaking about the roundtables that EPA has decided to put on around the country in order to get opinions and feedback on the changes to WOTUS. That's the waters of the U.S. law, folks. If you've been tuning into this program or any ag program over the past several years, you've no doubt heard lots of conversations over WOTUS. This is the rule that defines what you as a landowner can and cannot do on your property if that property has a water of the U.S. And so the big question is, what is the definition for a water of the U.S.? Does it need to be a navigable river, something that can carry boats up and down the waterways, or is an ephemeral stream a part of that? And there have been two different opinions pushed on this. And now the EPA is looking for hearings, even though there's a Supreme Court case pending. There's going to be a lot of woe to stock, but let's jump into the details of these roundtables. Joining me now, Mary Thomas Hart. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Let's discuss these roundtables. Ten of them coming. One has happened. What have we learned? What did we learn on that first roundtable? So I think we learned that there's going to be a lot of variation in what we're hearing on the regional roundtables. And, you know, first, I want to highlight that I think these regional roundtables are really important, right? One of the issues that we've had with WOTUS over the years is that, you know, some definitions have failed to recognize geographic and regional differences that we have to face when we're managing water quality. So I think that EPA's intent in having these regional roundtables to learn more about those geographic differences is really important and something that we should commend the agencies for. Um, certainly, we know that we're going to see a, a wide range of viewpoints, and yesterday was an example of that. There was um, certainly some criticism of the agricultural industry specifically, um, but I think that that will certainly be countered down the road um, when we have some more ag-centric roundtables that allow farmers and ranchers to, to address their concerns. And it's interesting, as I look at this list of roundtables, each one is, it appears to be effectively sponsored by an organization. How did they pick these groups to host these roundtables? Mary, do you know? So it was a, a unique process. You know, usually when we have a roundtable or, you know, any opportunity to provide input on a rulemaking, um, EPA or the agency that's doing the rulemaking will kind of set up the roundtable and, and organize everything and then, you know, include a range of stakeholders. This time, EPA kind of flipped the script. They put out a call for these uh, roundtable proposals and private entities or, you know, uh, trade associations, groups that represent interested stakeholders were allowed to submit a, you know, a plan for a roundtable that they were going to host. And then EPA chose 10 roundtables that, you know, in their mind represented a broad view of, you know, opinions on WOTUS, um, a broad geographic range, so that they could hear from a variety of voices and also I think it, it gives the stakeholders a little more investment in the process. So, you know, for example, the Kansas Livestock Association is hosting a roundtable, and they were able to work with EPA to organize, you know, the questions that are going to be asked as the participants. So we really make sure that, you know, regulated stakeholders are playing an active role in the roundtable process. Mary, we're doing all of this work around WOTUS having these conversations, scheduling these roundtables, and yet Sackett versus EPA, the case challenging waters of the U.S. is going to be before the Supreme Court. Might all of this be for naught, depending on how the Supreme Court rules this fall? I think that there's definitely a risk of that, and that's why NCBA in our comments to EPA earlier this year requested that EPA put its rulemaking on pause until we hear from the Supreme Court in the Sackett decision. You know, when you have the Supreme Court considering the exact question that this rule is designed to answer, um, I think you have to be cautious in, in moving forward, knowing that whatever the Supreme Court issues um, in the next year or so, EPA is going to have to go back and adjust the definition of WOTUS to include, um, to include 
the precedent for that opinion. Um, so, you know, we certainly have encouraged the agencies to, to press pause because we really don't want EPA or the Army Corps wasting resources on a rulemaking that they're just going to have to do another time. And, and obviously, that adds additional um, inconsistency or lack of certainty for farmers and ranchers across the country. Yeah, it certainly does. Mary, looking out over the next couple of weeks, what are the next roundtables and can producers view them from home? They can view them from home. So if you go to if you go to EPA's WOTUS webpage, you'll be able to pull up a list of all of the regional roundtables that are coming up in the next few weeks. A few of those are going to be hosted, like I mentioned, by the Kansas Livestock Association, some various um, state farm bureaus. Um, so you can watch those live or you can watch the recordings of the roundtables after they happen. Um, so I would definitely recommend that your listeners go to EPA's website and find those links to, to watch those roundtables. And folks, we will share that link on our Twitter page. Follow us at under, AOA underscore talk show. Mary, how can folks keep up to date with the work that NCBA is doing on this issue? You can go to ncba.org um, slash policy, um, where we will provide updates. You can also follow us at BeefUSA on Instagram, Twitter, and follow us on Facebook. Fantastic. That's Mary Thomas Hart, Environmental Counsel at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. And folks, before we go, I wanted to give a shout out. The work of AOA would not be possible without the affiliate stations that carry this program. We have a great cast of affiliates carrying this program really all across the country. And I tip my hat to the station managers, farm directors, and crew of those stations every day. And we've got a special announcement. One of our affiliates, WRDN Durand, Wisconsin, is celebrating 10 years on the air this year. So big thanks to Brian Winnikins for carrying AOA and thank you WRDN for doing the work that you do out there in rural America and folks I second that for every affiliate that works with AOA thanks to all of you for the work that you do in this industry and folks we look forward to talking to you tomorrow on this program Arlen Suderman will be joining us in addition to Will Lukes he's with the National Milk Producers Federation we're going to talk about the outlook for dairy exports around the world Wednesday on AOA thanks for tuning in folks we'll see you tomorrow Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Senex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Senex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.